Hello and welcome. Happy Tuesday. It's This Is Going Well, I Think, with David Cooper. I'm David Cooper. This is the show where no one's listening, no one cares, and where every episode's the last episode. Now, today, we're going to sit down and talk to technology expert Carmi Levy. We're going to do a story based on AI and photos, but then we're going to dig a little deeper, chill, get to know each other, go off script. Really do the kind of interview I want to do, because when I used to work with Carmi, we used to just be serious, serious, serious text story, text story, text story. And we never got to do the fun stuff. We never got to do the deep stuff. So today is a shot to do that. I hope you like this interview. been a long time carmy <laughs> i missed you you're like a ray of sunshine the world needs more light oh my god i mean <laughs> here i am bright and shiny you're the first person to ever say that about me you're oh you're kidding i i find that difficult to believe thanks for doing whatever the hell this is <laughs> the uh producer of this show danny was pitching to me like tech stories and i'm like jesus fucking christ i haven't talked to carmy in a long time Awesome. Well, I'm glad you reached out. She sent me something about how Google was scared to release like facial recognition software because it was too dangerous. Yeah, it's basically like an AI-powered reverse image search, very much like Clearview AI. And the other history of that is, is the RCMP and the Toronto cops got into huge trouble a few years ago when they started using it without bothering to tell anybody. Um, and then they were ultimately uh, investigated over it. So, But they're the good guys. They can use invasive technology. <laughs> Within bounds, right? Like, like you tell me what tools you need to do your job so that there's transparency and visibility within society, but don't just start using it without telling anyone. And then, you know, essentially make up the rules as you go along, because then we're right into, into you know, dystopian 1984. And so there, it's a very fine line. We want them to have the right tools to keep us safe. We don't want them to then use those tools to violate our privacy without any kind of controls on the process. But I feel like if any party lies or misrepresents in any kind of legal proceeding, they're in big trouble. But the cops are allowed to lie to you when they're investigating things. That's just like an investigative tool. And I worry when we give people like that a lot of power to surveil us without our consent. Exactly. And and, and now put AI in their pocket, right? And, and don't just put AI in their pocket, but don't bother having any uh, countervailing rules to ensure appropriate use, to ensure that that balance is maintained. So just, you know, give them a nuclear bomb and say, go, go play with it. Have fun. We don't really care what you do with it. That's just, that's really where we're at with AI now. I'm just thinking like if cops really want to take you down, they could have AI figure out the best way to do it. Like while investigating you, what's the best way to lie or misrepresent to get this person to confess to something, whether they did it or not? Because, you know, people confess to crime they didn't do all the time because of pressure and investigation exactly and what if they take an ai bot and they sick it on all the publicly accessible data that is out there on me uh and then somewhere in the middle of all of this it the, the bot hallucinates which as ha these are known to do and it comes up with some kind of conclusion that i'm some kind of mad scientist bent on world domination and then they use that to concoct a case against me present me with the evidence that they've 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 pulled together and next thing you know i'm on the receiving end of a legal nightmare not of my making so i mean it's 
It can certainly happen. It isn't just the plot of a Hollywood movie. This could be reality. Yeah, like uh, there's a lot. I'm sure if you dig deep into the internet, you could find things like about my ex-wife or something. And the cops could say, she turned on you. This is what she told us. We're, we're saying she turned on you and she said you did a crime. And here's the evidence that it was actually her and we're not lying to you. But the AI just helped them get this fake evidence. I don't know. It's scary. You're talking about how AI hallucinates. I still code occasionally as a hobby. That was my job before I mm-hmm. was in radio and then got uh, put out on my ass by uh, our lovely uh, friend, Mr. Media, <laughs> first name Bell. But, you know, I code as a hobby. And so people talk about how ChatGPT can be a code assistant. Mm-hmm. And I remember six months ago, I was writing some code for the radio station that I work at at Burning Man, which I've talked about ad nauseum on the show. I'm not going to talk about it. But I was like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Maybe I'll, I'll get ChatGPT to tell me how to code this. And did it generate the code that you needed? Well, I asked it and it generated this beautiful what we call pseudocode, which is like code like stuff. You know, maybe you got to actually correct it and certain things, but it basically walks you through the process. And I'm like, that is so easy. This looks too good to be true. And it was referencing a software library. I don't want to get too technical, but basically a tool you can use to code things. And I'm like, wow, this tool looks so easy. I can just plug that in and get what I want done for this stupid website. (laughs) The tool didn't exist. It just made it up. False reference, kind of like that lawyer who submitted a a brief that studied cases that never actually happened and didn't bother to check his work and and submitted it as fact and was found out. Um, That's I think that's the that's the duality of all of all AI tools like this is that they will generate something. That's what generative generative AI does. Um, But it isn't always on the up and up um, because in many cases it will pull data out of context and it will interpret it wrongly uh, and use that as the basis of a lie. And if you then don't validate that work and you take it at face value, um, you can make a bad situation infinitely worse uh, if you if, if you push it down the line. For every blog or post where someone writes the following, suppose what I'm about to be would be true. And then it writes a long technical manual. And then at the end, it's like, this is not true. But suppose it was blah, blah, blah. And then ChatGPT just gets a hold of it. And then it quotes the supposition or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, as fact. Yeah, it's kind of scary. And it was just wild to me because I got kind of bamboozled. I'm like, wow, this coding thing is really easy. And then the more I looked at it, I'm like, ChatGPT just made this shit up. You can't do that. And I know it's a small example, but it was something that happened to me. And I know people talk about how AI lies. It was just interesting to be lied to like that. Yeah, it's terrifying when you come face to face with it for the first time uh, to realize just how routine uh, a lie can be in the context of a generative AI bot, uh, how easy it is to create something like that and how easy it is for that lie to then be propagated beyond just you uh, through the power of social media and other messaging platforms. It's we're, we're in an age now when it's terrifyingly easy to spread misinformation to a large audience and AI powers this and we enable it by not being better filters of that content as it moves from one step to the next. Okay, getting less out of context here. We're <laughs> behaving like AI. What was the technology that Google was too afraid to release exactly? So uh, the technology that this article from NPR talks about is known as PimEyes, and you can find it's a free service. You go to PimEyes.com, P-I-N-E-Y-E-S.com. And basically what it does, you upload a photo to it, and then it gives you information on on that photo. Where else is, is it available online? Where is the person in that photo? Are there other photos like that? It uses uh, advanced AI facial recognition to identify the individual in the photo and then find other content 
content like it and put it into context and then spit it back at you. Of course, if you want to have more information on that individual, basically like a reverse image search on steroids, you've got to pay for it. There's a freemium model, but even in the, at the free tier, it's easy enough to see the results, the websites of where this stuff comes from. You do a little bit of your own research and next thing you know, that random stranger that you cross paths with, paths with on the street and manage to get a photo as you shot a background street picture, uh, now you can have their entire personal dossier. You've essentially violated their privacy because they had the temerity to go out in public and be captured by your photo. It's a terrifying new uh, kind of moment uh, in lack of privacy in public spaces because it essentially allows, allows anyone to do reverse image search based on just simply taking a picture, feeding it into this tool and seeing what it can dig up incredibly frightening where Google comes into this is that uh, scientists are saying that Google and other platforms have had this very same technology uh, in in the works in their labs for years but they did not release it Eric Schmidt for example who was this the uh, the the chairman of Google in 2011 said uh, we they had developed it but we're afraid to release it because of the potential for malevolent actors to use it to do bad things they were concerned about the misuse potential uh, so they never released it into the wild and now you have tools like PimEyes that are out in the wild uh, tools like Clearview AI which was used by the RCMP and the Toronto Police Service a few years back without anyone else's uh, approval or knowledge uh, to essentially look up uh, pictures of Canadians that they happen to come across on the street. Uh, they were roundly criticized for it. In their investigations were, were had. Uh, they ultimately stopped using the technology and Clearview no longer offers that technology in Canada. But the damage is done and the technology is out there. And just because it stopped with Clearview uh, doesn't mean that it isn't going to continue. We expect to see more tools like this, uh, reverse image search powered by AI, uh, available on broadly available platforms in the months and years to come. And without any kind of legislation governing their use, you and I, the moment we step out the door, we're vulnerable. Absolutely. I don't know. I'm thinking of it as like a reverse image search for people where you can find out lots of information about them. I don't know. I'm a millennial. I was in my mid-20s when high-quality camera phones became widely available and MMSs or image texts or now image iMessages. Like, I don't know. I was in my 20s. I was having sex. I was sending naked photos of myself. My girlfriend was sending naked photos of herself. Of course, I only say this for parody purposes. Obviously, that isn't true. She would never admit to that. But I'm always curious, <laughs> did like my nudes, but I guess women more so, did my nudes that I sent in confidence, in confidence, not to be shared, end up on the internet. So you want to put yourself and a photo of yourself in this tool to see, but then once you've put your photo in the tool, you've exposed yourself. So it's like, you know, I, I would love to know whether there's some creepy website with me naked on it. Of course, this is just a joke. I would never actually send a naked photo. Of course I did. It's But it, it's probably not just one creepy website. It's probably a photo that you did send to someone way back when in confidence that because it was digitized somehow did end up in a place where you did not intend it to because that's just what happens with data. We lose control of it. It ends up in places where we did not want it to go. Uh, and then it sits there in the dusty corners of the internet. And up until now, that hasn't been much of a problem because you, you know it was it was really not a regular thing that some individual you know some stranger would then randomly stumble across it but in the age of ai it's it's a very different story now you have you know in order to train uh, a generative ai platform you have large language models that are sc scraping the internet looking for every 
every little bit of data uh, that they can find in those dusty, shadowy corners. And they're finding those pieces of, of our digital history that we thought would never again see the light of day. And they're being incorporated into these tools. And then, of course, you sick something like PIM eyes or Clearview AI on them, and suddenly it puts all the pieces together. It makes it ridiculously easy for our past to be dredged up and used against us in this terrifying new way. And there's no stopping it. I can't scroll the internet and find every last scrap of digital evidence of my existence to date. There's stuff out there I'd rather people not see, but I can't find it. Generative AI can, and these tools can surface it to any rando who happens to plug my photo into uh, a certain an AI-powered search engine or a tool like PMIs or Clearview AI, and there is not a thing that I can do to stop it. Yeah. I guess not send the data. I, I don't think in the future the protection is going to be avoiding having these leaks. It's living in a world where it's so pervasive it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm almost like the the bar for privacy is, has shifted, right? You know, we used to assume, well, if you don't want it to go public, then simply don't share it. But how do you live in a digital age without sharing at least some amount of data of yourself? You, you can't go analog uh, on everything. Increasingly, those analog options are no longer in existence. Uh, I have no choice but to take a photo of myself and share it so that I can apply for that bank account, for example. Uh, and so a digital version of my head is going to exist somewhere, whether I like it or not. I'm going to have to trust that the bank is going to do right by me or that it's not going to be intercepted between, you know, when I send it and when they receive it. And we all know full well that stuff happens. So, you know, if we're going to live in a digital world, we're just going to have to accept that that line of privacy isn't as black and white as we might have once thought it was. It's very fuzzy. And unfortunately, uh, there are going to be cases where we're going to have that sick feeling in the pit of our stomach because folks are going to know things about us that we'd rather they not know. Yeah, I was just thinking how having a phone is you really needed to participate in the world. You really needed to have a job to function, to get an apartment. I was walking in an area of Manhattan with a large population of unhoused folks, and I saw two separate booths uh, where all these people were hanging out on the street uh, so that people could get cell phones. And I, I've heard this before, but to see it, like you can't get a job, you can't get an apartment, you can't like function and get yourself off the streets without a cell phone nowadays. And I just, I find that fact so fascinating. It, it is the modern gateway uh, through which all services are delivered, like it or not. There's, there is no paper. Newspapers, for all you know, for all intents and purposes, don't exist in their former form. Uh, when you apply for a job, you're no longer applying for a clipping. You're not printing things out. Um, everything is done on electronic platforms, and so either you have the ability to to connect all, all across those electronic platforms or you're simply not part of modern digital society. And it's terrifying to think of the digital have-nots who are being increasingly locked out of uh, life because they don't have access to these digital tools. It's heartening to see efforts being made to uh, enable the unhoused community to have access to these technologies, but clearly more needs to be done. Uh, and you know, it's it, 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 it kills me because that gate, uh, that electronic or technological gate continues to become uh, more significant. You need more technology. You need, you don't just need a phone, you need a 5G phone in order to take a certain kind of picture to apply to a certain kind of job. Um, and you've got to have certain apps and you have to have certain knowledge in order to game the system to ensure that your resume makes it to the front of the line. Um, you know, does, does, does a member of the unhoused community have access to all of these resources to make sure that they can compete or are they going to get left behind because no one thought of their 
our needs. Oh, for sure they're going to get left behind. I mean, that's just uh, God bless America on that one. But I just mean getting them phones is like a very crucial first step to like getting an apartment, getting uh, housing, getting a basic job. And without that, you can't even do that. In the future, is it going to be cybernetic implants? That I don't know. Not in my lifetime. Although, you know, there there are some companies that will happily put one in your hand and allow you to, you know, instead of carrying a fob, you and I have talked about this, this in the past where, you know, to, to fob into a building, you just you just use your hand because they've implanted something there, uh, which is kind of scary when you move on to the next job and your employer still has a, an implant of theirs in your body. Um, but I, I, I think it's inevitable. And I think that line where it is if not pervasive, at least for frequent enough that it's visible to most of us, is a little closer than we might have thought. Well, now when you get mugged, you just get beaten up and get your wallet taken. In the future, are they going <laughs> to cut off your hand? Jesus. Some medieval shit right there. They're going to scan you for your cybernetics. Carmi, how are you doing? This pot, This is like a... I feel like we're just going through the motions of what we used to do. Tech story, boom, boom. And I like these conversations with you. I always did. But on this format, we can chill. We can be loose. How are you doing? How are you holding up? How are things... You live in London, Ontario? London, Ontario. So about two hours west of Toronto, two hours east of Detroit. I know where fucking London is, but I don't know if everyone listening does. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, for anyone outside this region, uh, whenever I say London, they think it's the real London and then no one realizes it's the other boring, small Canadian London. There's big London and little London. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of our streets have the same names. We have an Oxford Street. We have a Dundas Street, you know, we, like we have here on like we have all the same uh, streets, institutions. Uh, we have a St. Paul's Basilica. It's kind of amusing. You've got a Buckingham Palace. You've got Big Ben. You've got it all, yeah. I wish we had a Buckingham, but we do have a Thames River, though, which is you know quite fascinating. Although most of the time, it's not so much a river as it is a uh, half-empty creek. But we'll take it. There are fish in there. People do fish there, and sometimes you'll see an, an occasional kayak. People commute to work on kayak here. I don't know if they do that in the real London. So score one for Canada, woohoo! But it's a lovely place. It's small. Um, we don't have the same traffic issues that we do. We don't have a subway, of course, but um, it's kind of a town that most people don't realize exists, even though it is the test market capital of North America. Apparently, when companies want to test products on a representative population, they come to London first because there's something about our demographic makeup that makes us very alike of other communities. And you're the every town. We are. It's sort of weird. It, it almost feels very Simpsonian. Um, uh, but, you know, at the same time, it's kind of a cool place to live. It's a little quieter, but it's close enough to a place like Toronto that if I need to be in the big city, uh, all I got to do is hop on a hop on a train and two hours later, I'm right there, right downtown. So close enough to the stuff I need, but far enough away that I can get away from it if I like. And uh, having moved here from Montreal a few years back, this is a, a, a rather nice change. Montreal was getting... A little much. The, the the traffic and the whole politics stuff just kind of... <laughs> the traffic. I live in fucking Manhattan, Carmi. <laughs> I'm in downtown Manhattan. It once took me... I am a maybe a kilometer, like three, two, two-thirds a mile away from the uh, Holland Tunnel, which takes you to Jersey City. And then from there, you go to Newark Airport. I was once... I called a cab because I had these huge suitcases. I couldn't take the subway. I called the cab to get from my apartment to the entrance of the Holland Tunnel. <laughs> How long did that take? How many hours? And, and then once I got to the tunnel, it was another 45 minutes to the airport. How long to get two thirds of a mile from my front door to 
the Holland Tunnel. So I'm going to guess an hour and a half? Two and a half. Two and a half, uh, three and a half to get to the airport. And we gave it lots of time. Yeah. You would have been faster walking. I know. I could have walked to the entrance of the tunnel and hailed a cab and saved two hours. But <laughs> I had a bunch of suitcases. Forget it. Uh, so, okay, you're in London. When I used to work for iHeartRadio Canada, Bell Media, whatever. Back in the day. Uh, yeah, it was a year ago. Crazy that I lost that job. Wow. But I used to be on this uh, affiliate station they had in London, CJBK, which you were kind of, it, it got shut down, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, of course, you know, Bell Media fairly regularly, like a, many media organizations in Canada, goes through some you know, rounds of cutbacks as the advertising market continues to tighten. Uh, and as part of their most recent wave of cutbacks in June, they closed a, a number of AM stations across the country. And unfortunately, the one in London was the you know where I used to work. That station had been around since the 60s. Yeah, CJBK 1290 uh, was rather legendary, was the top performing radio station in the market for years. Uh, and a lot of the people who cycled through the big chair at, at CJBK were absolute legends in the industry. Myself included in the overnight chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what was sad, you, you could kind of see the end coming because a few years before that fateful day when they finally decided to shut it down, um, they, they've been cutting back on their shows. And in fact, the only local show that was still around was the morning show um, with Ken Eastwood and Lorena Dixon. And everything else was network content that, you know, from the, the Bell Media Network. And again, uh, you know, you do what you need to do to keep the lights on, but it ceased being a local radio station years before they finally shut it down. And so as soon as the morning show went off air at nine o'clock, uh, everything was syndicated from other markets. And I think that was the really the beginning of the end. Radio is a local medium. And if you're not going to provide local content, folks are going to find some other option. And that's what they did. Uh, and clearly advertisers had, had, had you know, a different uh, different plans. And uh, unfortunately, they just couldn't make a go of it here. They saw it as yesterday's technology, yesterday's news, didn't see it as a going concern and closed it up. But radio in the U.S., in particular in New York, like still makes money. Because they're still connected to their market. They still recognize that if you spend the money on content, spend the money on good local hosts uh, and and connect with your community that the market is there. You might shut the radio station down, but the demand for knowing your neighborhood and knowing the people in your neighborhood and having something familiar to wake up to every morning and familiar to listen to through the day uh, is still there. Uh, and and the fact that, you know, saner heads could not prevail and realize that before the transmitter was shut off for the last time is is sad to me. I grew up listening to radio like this uh, and to see it go dark is incredibly painful to witness. I have a theory. I mean, I'll share it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much you want me like trashing these telecom companies. The fact is, I still do appearances for Bell three nights a week with Jim Richards. But I have a theory. Uh, you get these large media companies and they're telecom adjacent. They're media arms of telecom companies. And in Canada, the large telecom companies print money through their cell phone, through their internet, through their regular services. And then so every year or so, and some executive looks at the media arm and they're like, well, this isn't making enough money. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't give it any love. We should make cutbacks, which makes sense. If something isn't making money, you make cutbacks. But then because there's cutbacks, it gets no love. And then when it gets no love, it underperforms. And when it underperforms, it's on the slate for cutbacks. And when it gets cutbacks, it underperforms. Uh, when it underperforms, people are unhappy. They're not, you know. And so it's this vicious cycle of neglect 
and then looking at it and saying, hey, it's not making enough money. We should neglect it more. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, I'm I'm not going to disagree with you. That's exactly how I see it. If you and and you can see it in the language that they use whenever they decide to shut down a station or a number of stations is they view it as a cost. Uh, they they see it as that it cost us this amount of money. We lost this amount of money keeping these operations going. Um, when in fact, what they were doing was investing in content that added value to their telecommunications networks. That was the rationale for buying into media in the first place. Was that here you had a telecommunications company that wanted to differentiate itself with really cool, local, relevant, in-demand content and brands that listeners and viewers absolutely loved. And then at some point, someone started looking at it as a number on a spreadsheet and said, that number is too big. It's too red. We're not making enough. We've got to cut back. And of course, if you are a listener or for television, if you're a viewer, that when that offering starts to get thinned out, you start looking elsewhere. You you don't stay with that station all day, every day, because you have better things to do with your time. And if they're not going to spend on keeping you entertained and keeping things local, then you're not going to spend your time on them. That's how this works. Good content costs. Good content keeps audiences engaged. If you're not going to spend on it, they'll go somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, uh, we don't even need to talk about these Canadian companies. When you have a business (laughs) and you neglect it, it's going to underperform. And then when it underperforms and you look at your books, you're like, why am I investing in this? And then you invest less and then it underperforms more. You need to give things a little love and give them a little time. Yeah. And so that's my theory of how it can happen. I'm not accusing any individual media company of doing it. Uh, But it appears to having worked in it, and still kind of working with it. Are you still doing hits for Bell? Is it? Are you? Do you only do Bell, or you do Rogers too? No, I do. I do across the board. So I, I do a lot of Bell. I have you know regular hits, weekly hits on uh, News Talk 1010 with John Moore on Tuesdays, with Patricia Bull, CFRA in Ottawa on Tuesdays as well. Um, CKTB, Steph Vivier on Thursday, and CJAD in Montreal. Uh, with Aaron Rand and Natasha Hall on Thursdays, as well as uh, you know regular hits on CTV News Channel, CTV National News, CP24. You shave when you go on the air? Do you clean yourself <laughs> up, or do you just you're like fuck yeah. it? Because you're a little scruffy. You look kind of handsome. I like it. I'm a, I'm a little scruffy. I do keep the beard. Uh, my my kids seem to like it, so I'm going to keep it. It's happening to me too when the spot around the bottom of your chin comes in gray. It's a scary. Uh, and I'm okay with that. You're a little older than me, yeah. Yeah, I'm a bit older, but you know what? And this this certainly doesn't help. And I, I thought about it. Is it making me look older? But at the same time, like, you know what? I am what I am. You look wise. How old are you? Will you answer that question or <laughs> you, you want to decline? Will I answer that? I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I will challenge our, our audience to go find that online and we can report back. Oh, my God. Use use the tools. Use AI to figure out how old Carmi is and, uh, and, and, and let me know. LinkedIn. I usually go LinkedIn. <laughs> LinkedIn, and then I go, what year you graduated? <laughs> That's uh, all right. We're, we're yeah. Good. Although maybe I was a dummy in school and I just stayed in school for far longer than I probably should have. So that's a possibility. I got really good at undergrad, Carmi. I spent five and a half years doing it. I have way more experience than everyone else. You graduated in 1990, so you would have been 20 in 19, no, 23 in 1990. Um, yeah, I was old enough. Yeah. So, yeah. and that was 33 years ago. F- 55, 55. You look good for your age. You're close. Yeah, well, I exercise a lot. I'm 37 and I look like shit. 
I, I get out into the woods a lot. We're very lucky to live in an area like five minutes, a five minute walk from my house. I'm in the middle of the forest. And so I sometimes I take the dog, sometimes I go alone or I take my camera, whatever. And I just I make a point of getting out in there regularly. Uh, and even if it's just for half an hour, just to kind of disconnect and, and, you know, turn off notifications and just be at one, it sounds trite and weird, uh, but be at one with nature and it's wonderful. Or I'll get on my bike and just disappear where, you know, London, one of the advantages of living in a smaller city like London is five minutes from the house, a five minute ride. I'm looking at cows and horses. It's we're surrounded by agricultural hinterland. So it doesn't take much to, for me to get out of town where I can just ride and be away from traffic. Uh, so there, there's some advantages to living in a smaller than usual city. We're still 400 plus thousand people, um, but it's, it feels like a small town. Uh, and, and there are ways for me to kind of disconnect here that I could not have accomplished if I, we had moved to Toronto or if we had stayed in Montreal as was the original plan and sort of it makes me glad that we're here that's and does that help me lead a healthier life i don't know i hope so and if it doesn't at least i'm enjoying myself pretty cool place to live yeah i mean i've been my brother went to western for a year party western Woo! my son goes to western he loves it he doesn't party there though he's a pretty serious dude but, yeah i'm uh, sure yeah yeah dad i don't party of course yeah but but, but he li- <laughs> but he lives on a street so he lives just on the edge of campus and uh and he is surrounded of course you know, not everyone uh, in the homes around his uh, has the same attitude towards school and parting. And so uh, I'll go drop him off or pick him up or get together with him. And the Lord knows there'll be parties on the street in the middle of the day. I don't quite understand how that works. I don't know how you maintain a full course load and still manage to party and go to class and hit deadlines. But hey, more power to whoever these students are because they are the future. Okay, so one more thing. I was looking at your LinkedIn just now to try to decode your age, and I was reminded how you have a day job for a tech company, and then you also work in media. Yeah. And I'm just like, I, I'm at a bit of a crossroads here. It's been a year since I've had a steady job. I'm doing this podcast, but we, we haven't figured out how to sell sponsorship on it or anything. I'm trying to find a media job with the show, but I'm like, I don't know. I'm kind of at a crossroads. Do I keep going? Living off of savings in New York, so really burning through savings at an insane rate because New York's the cheapest city in the world. <laughs> Said no one ever. <laughs> or do I like, I'm like thinking, do I go back to tech? What at one point do I throw in the towel? Do I want to run out of money? Do I want to have zero dollars in my bank account? Like, what's my buffer? When do I go back? What do I need to be doing to try to find a job? I'm just like, I don't, I don't fucking know. I will share some advice that I received very early. I wasn't, I hadn't even started my career. I was some punk ass student in Sejap in Montreal. And I cold called uh, the top rock station in the city and asked if their morning man would uh, give me uh, a little bit of time for me to just have a chat with him. And Terry DeMonte, uh, who recently retired from Bell Media, from Shome in Montreal, um, uh, said yes and had me into the station, brought me in for hours on end, gave me a tour, sat me down, answered every question that I could ask him, and then uh, was incredibly generous with his time. Didn't have to be. Uh, and then when uh, when it was done, I asked him one last question. I said, like, what have I not asked? And he goes, goes one piece of advice. And this is the one thing I remember from that day that he said. 
Uh, he said, find something that you love to do so much that you do it for nothing and then figure out how to make money at it. And that has stuck with me for years. I've bumped into him again in the years since then. And I've reminded him of that, that I've held on to that piece of advice. I've uh, straddled that line in my career where, you know, I'm a media, you know, I, I, I work in media. That's my background. I'm a journalist by education and experience. Yet in order to pay the bills, I've, you know, tried to work with uh, companies to do their marketing for them which is has never been my first love but uh you know it it, it paid the bills um but long term you got to be happy and you got to find some way and I, I realize that i'm a bit of a round peg in a square hole as are you um but find what you love because if it isn't and if you do it for an organization that doesn't understand that you're that square peg in a round hole or vice versa then you're just going to be miserable and so uh if 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 you love the media stuff find a way to make it work um and uh hell i love the media stuff and i will find ways to continue to cross your path because i think you and i are asking the same questions and getting the same answers yeah i mean for me i found something i loved i somehow got that job I was making money at what I loved. Now I'm not. What I love is not necessarily like AM radio. It's long format interview. I mean, my my dream job would be like being on late night TV or something like this. But yeah, that kind of sitting down, what we're doing now, I want and I have made a career out of it. There's always been bullshit. There was bullshit when I had a regular day job and I did radio as a hobby. There was bullshit when I did radio as a full-time job. I had to do a lot of stuff uh, to fit within the confines of the format that wasn't my voice exactly but the payoff was i got to do things that were my voice but mm -hmm. i guess i say all of that to communicate to you i found something i loved i figured out a way to make money at it but now i'm struggling i'm not making money i would say there are probably other opportunities in the same space yeah just because one opportunity dries up doesn't mean that there aren't others in a parallel sort of path uh, and you just have to have confidence in your own gift. And I say this having... I do, I do, I, I do enough. I mean, I'm a pessimistic, self-loathing Jew, but I, I do have enough confidence. <laughs> I round up to having confidence. Well, this pessimistic, self-loathing Jew uh, would would like to say, and, and I, I do these interviews, I do interviews with a lot of people. Uh, and some, you know, I, I really like doing and others are just, you know, because it's a platform and it gives me good visibility and I do it because I have to. I'm not fishing for a compliment. I know where you're going with this. But I will tell you, you, I, I have always enjoyed, you have a certain voice, a certain gift, and you're a heck of a lot of fun to work with. And honestly, I've got to believe uh, that that kind of compelling content ultimately has a market. Whatever that path is, is TBD, but there is demand for it. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why every time you or your producer reach out to me, I am there in a heartbeat because it makes my day to do this. And I know I'm not, I'm not the only one. I know that as a, you know, a listener or a viewer would absolutely love to, you know, consume that and there's value in that. And so you just have to believe that you have to not believe the naysaying voices in your head, either the internal ones or the external ones that say, this is a dead end. Don't no, no, your talent is not a dead end. And, you know, quite frankly, that gift, it'll find its place. You just have to give it time. All right. I appreciate the advice. I was hoping you as a techie would say, go back to the old job, take the money. Um, but when you say there's a new job out there, I remember when I first quit my job, my, my tech job, not radio, like to be in broadcasting, you know, walk away from that salary, that security, all that in 20, at the end of 2020, I had a call with someone who you will well know. He used to be the program director uh, at Bell Media at CFRB, ben, Mike Ben Dixon. He now works for Chorus Media. 
And I, I got to sit down chat with him somehow. I mean, he'd heard my demo. At this point, I'm a hobbyist wanting to be a professional. Like, I, I'd never done commercial radio before. Yeah. And I remember sitting down with him, and he's telling me all about the career path and this, that, and I'm asking him all these questions and just kind of figuring out how it all works because I didn't know how it worked. Mm -hmm. And I asked him a question. I said, you've heard my demo. You are hearing from me what, I, what it is I want to do, which is very similar to what that late night show was, give or take. You know what I want to do. You know about me. You've worked in this industry and, you know, created shows like this before. How do I go from where I'm at now to where I want to be? You as someone who's put people to where I want to be. What does that path look like? What does that path look like? And he had a fascinating answer for me, Carmi. What did he say? This is a guy who's literally put fuckers like me on the air. Yeah, he's, he's, he's written the book on how the process works. I mean, that's, he's, he's the authority. And he's taken a chance on new talent that's never been on the air before. He's done it all. And he's done it for 20, 25 years. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's, he's, a, he's, guy's a legend. Um, and I say this having, you know, worked, uh, you know, it, you know, on, on platforms that he has led, uh, you know, been advised by him, always had an open door policy. I mean, this is a guy whose word I I've always attached a huge amount of weight to. So I ask him, how do I do it? Knowing me, you know, you know, you know, a little bit about me right now is what I say to him, knowing, you know, a little bit about where I want to go. How do I go from A to B? You've brought people from A to B. And he looked me in the eye and he said, I don't know, which I found fascinating. He's like everyone's story for how they get on air is different. There is no script. There is people who went to journalism school, who worked as board ops, who tried so hard and could never get a show. And there's people who got shows quickly. Uh, there's people who get fall into shows. They filled in one day and then the host gets hit by a bus. Yeah. And he's right. Everyone's got a different story. And there is no script. And I, I was terrified by that. But also I found great comfort in that. Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like I needed to have this exact plan. Yeah, there's no one template. And so you're, you can't really be outside of a template if that template doesn't exist. You know, it's almost like your life story gets you to that point. I remember doing stand-up early on, and I remember this guy who was mentoring me or teaching us stand-up or whatever. Like, he's just one of these, I don't know, fuck him, I hate him, but whatever. He's like, <laughs> sometimes when you arrive at stand-up comedy too young, you don't have a voice and you're thinking, oh, I, I need to develop my voice, but it's not that. You need to live life. Mm -hmm. And a part of me is like, okay, maybe that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm figuring it all out and then another opportunity will come. But then an, a part of me is saying, well, if there's no way to do it and all these people who book acts like me don't know how to do it, maybe there won't be another job for me. It's a weird response, but I also found it very truthful and very fascinating. I found it to be a little bit encouraging, but a little bit discouraging because there's no one thing I can do right now to get a, a show, you, you know? There isn't. You just have to do what you think you're best at and what you feel most comfortable in. It's like, you know, when I'm riding the bike and I'm, you know, cranking along in the country at some ridiculous speed, it's what feels best so that I go fastest. And I tr I'll try different things, different positions on the bike, different paces, different gears. And then eventually you kind of settle into a groove and then you watch the numbers on your computer and you realize, man, I'm flying because everything is just clicking. But if you had asked me at the beginning of the ride, how am I going to ride as fast as possible? I wouldn't have been able to tell you, I would have had to try different things along the way. And I think that's really kind of where we're at here is that you try different things. Some feel good, some don't. There's no script. There's no one, no one can stand off to the side and tell you, Carmi, do this, David, do that. Um, you have to figure it out for yourself and you have to ride often enough and you have to get out there often enough to understand what that feeling is. Know what it feels like when you're really locked in and rocking and rolling and, and, and keep 
going back to that well again and again and again because you know it's it's you know like what was it Wayne Gretzky or Michael Jordan <laughs> uh, you know you, you know like you're you know you 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 miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take and so you have to just keep taking shots until and and hopefully you'll get them in um you have to get yourself out there again and again and again it's Gretzky yeah it was Gretzky okay all right <laughs> I get I, I get all my sports analogies confused but like like ultimately it's 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 exercising that part of your brain uh that allows you to develop and evolve that gift that you've been given it's a cheesy uh cliche analogy the cycling and the numbers on the computer but I actually really like it because the numbers on the computer uh in this analogy could be you know when I was working for the media company the salary or when I'm doing the podcast you know the listenership and retention rate and the growth over time uh and then the actual cycling is doing the work which is what we're doing right now or I'm doing right now uh I like it and if I look at the numbers on the computer and I compare where they were, you know, just three years ago, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's my, I've achieved beyond my wildest dreams. But it, when you're in the moment and you're just comparing yourself to yesterday, sometimes it's kind of demoralizing because you, it doesn't increase that much, you know? Yeah. 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 You have to learn to use the numbers and I'm, I'm data driven. So when I go for a bike ride, everyone knows I can't, you know, my, my, my wife and kids know you stare at the fucking computer the whole time. You don't enjoy the bike ride. <laughs> yeah. I will not ride. Like I, one day I misplaced my Garmin, the little computer that I pop on the, on the bike. And I, I wouldn't ride because I said, if I'm not get, gathering data, I'm not riding. And sometimes I get so wrapped up in the data that I forget to just enjoy the ride. So use the numbers to, t- use the numbers to tell you that you're, you know, doing well and hand out there, but also every once in a while, just disconnect from them and look around. You might see a horse or a cow and, you know, you might just have a really cool experience that you didn't expect to have. You sort of have to find that sort of balance and also not keep looking at the numbers. Like I, you know, Oh my, I, I, I'm not faster than I was yesterday. Well, it's only been a day, you know? So what about six months? What about a year? What about a year and a half? You, you have to stop beating yourself up because the numbers aren't increasing by double digit percentages uh, every single time you go out. That's not how it works. And that isn't the only metric that's going to determine how ultimately how successful you are or how well you're spending that time that you've been given. Yeah. That's another thing. Like, how will I define success when I look back? Exactly. And, and, and sometimes I define that success, not by the, the, the ratings or the numbers or, you know, whether I got a regular gig or not, but by the note that I got from a listener or a viewer that I helped them, um, that, that, that it, you know, it, I gave them an answer that allowed them to figure something out that they were previously just completely stuck on, um, that I made a difference. Uh, and you know, it's always, you know, the one, right. Did you reach? And I, I do this at the end of the day, I think, you know, did I benefit one person in one way in, in some way? And if the answer is yes, it was a good day. If the answer is no, well, hopefully I'll get tomorrow and I get to try it again. Uh, and that at the end, like, so I don't beat myself up if I didn't meet every single metric, um, they're they're good to sort of put us in in the right place, but I think if we hold on to them too tightly, they can become a noose instead of a you know something that can actually help us improve. Yeah, you know when I was doing radio as a hobbyist, I remember from like 2016 to 2019, I got one really nice note from a stranger about how a show I did that he randomly caught um, meant so much to him, and I, I would tell this story at like as why I'm in this in the first place. Yeah. You know, and then I started doing it professionally and I I know I'm going to sound arrogant or whatever, but then people would reach out, maybe not every day, but several times a week, two, three times a week. And it's just, it's so nice. And it's very quickly you get used to that stuff, but you really do need to stop and say, 
this is actually wonderful. And there was a time when this happened once in a three-year period. Now it's happening three times a week. Um, and I just, I'm very grateful for for that ability to like connect with people. And I, I don't know. I don't know how I got off on this tangent, but. Well, you can't, you can't, that's something you can't put a number on, right? Is like the fact that you touched someone to the, to the degree that they felt compelled to reach back out to you. Um, that's not a metric. That's not a, a data point that you can compare against other data points. It's simply a human moment. Uh, and I think that the, the blessing or the payoff here is that uh, you did work that allowed you to have that really cool human moment. Um, and, 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 you know, gave you that sense of closure and satisfaction that you, you know, you, you put some light out into the world. And I think at the end of the day, whatever work we do, however much it pays us, whoever it's for, under what conditions it's done, whether it's an employee employer arrangement or freelance or whatever, um, that's the answer. When people ask me what I do, uh, you know, if my face lights up when I tell them the story, then I know I'm doing the right thing. If I, in the back of my mind, I feel like I have to act because I really don't like it, but I'm doing it because I, I just want to you know, have a paycheck or keep the lights on. That's a whole other story. And maybe at that point, that's when I really got to rethink my strategy. Because, you know, again, you know, having been, and this is something I know you know, but a lot of our our, our uh, audience might not, is that, you know, I had a stroke 10 years ago uh, and miraculously not only survived, but survived intact. Uh, and I, you know, not a day goes by that I don't think about how incredibly lucky I am to to be in this position that I can still have this conversation with you every moment of every day is 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 a bonus. It's a blessing. And so, you know, I, I'm very conscious of using whatever time I've been given of this bonus time uh for for something beneficial. Uh and because I don't know how much more of it I'm gonna have. I don't know if I'm gonna have another stroke. Um and, and so I, I, at the end of the day, I think that's why we're here is we've got time. Let's fill it and use it right. If we can have a great career at it, amazing. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I want people to remember me well. And if that means they reach out and they say, hey, you made a difference, then maybe I'm on the right track. I love what you're saying about face lighting up. It's kind of going back to my question, what should I do with this crossroads where I'm struggling a bit with money? I was imagining myself talking about my old job. And I, I do find what I used to do interesting. I do find coding interesting, but I'm imagining myself describing it to others. My face does not light up. I used to be like kind of embarrassed about it. I guess that's a more San Francisco thing because the tech industry is draining the city of its resources. And I was part of like that class of people. And I don't live in San Francisco anymore. I don't work in the tech industry. No one lives in San Francisco anymore either. They're, they're leaving. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, and I mean, I go there once or twice a year. It's getting worse and worse and worse. But I just, I would imagine myself describing what I do to strangers and my face not lighting up. And then I remember how I describe myself to strangers when I tell them I'm in radio. My face, I can't, I'm at, my face lights up more than you I could imagine it I guess is what I'm trying to say but anyway I just I wanted to tell you the power of that thank you for sharing the stroke stuff and taking a step back this is the kind of show that I want this to be but I also like that we oscillate between serious talking about this uh, facial recognition and then a little bit more intimate uh, I'm glad you came here today I'm glad we sat down I'm glad we were able to have a little more loose of a conversation than we used to on commercial radio it was just bang 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 story 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 interview over you know I, this is what I want to do 
this is a lot more fun uh, than than the alternative. And if you will have me back, I, I, I'd return in a heartbeat. I, I enjoyed what we used to do uh, on your old show. I enjoy this even more. And uh, to me, this is this is the kind of stuff like I uh, th- these are the kind of podcasts I love to listen to. I love to listen to stories about people being people. I like to hear about their lives. I like to get insight into what makes them tick. Uh, and this is exactly the kind of storytelling that I've always wanted to do and always wanted to be a part of. And it's a it's it's an honor to be a part of it and frankly a joy to see you doing it and doing it so well good well uh you're coming back how's uh tomorrow the day after that do you want the show i mean you, you could do the show i won't even show up i mean it's your show now <laughs> i i couldn't do it anywhere near as well as you do but i but uh, but i will chat with you for as long as you will keep the mic on well on that note let's turn the mics off <laughs> carmy thank you for coming here thanks for doing this show thanks david great being here with you